Turn with me to John chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 6 through 13 this morning. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. <clears throat> well, it is that time of year again. That time of year when the great debate arises. Debate that arises at Christmas parties and conversations with Friends, is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? I found myself in this conversation just this weekend. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? If you're not familiar with the, the movie, uh, it, the, the basic premise of the movie is that, I hear you Josh, uh, is that a police officer finds himself in the midst of the Christmas holiday really in the middle of a, a mission, as it were. And uh, it is your typical action movie with all of the explosions and fighting and uh, gunfire and gunfights. But it happens at Christmas. And so the debate rages over, is this a Christmas movie? And if so, how could such an action-oriented mission-type movie be considered a Christmas movie. No matter which side of the, uh, or rather, which, which group you fall into, which camp you fall into, that, that's the essence of the argument. How could a Christmas movie be so mission-oriented and action-packed? But our text this morning makes clear to us that Christmas is all about a mission. Actually, we understand from the text this morning that Christmas is most fundamentally about Christ's mission. So perhaps it's actually not all that odd of a category to fit Die Hard into the Christmas category. In our text, we find that John breaks down uh, this text. He, he, he um, um, divides this text really into to two main points. Uh, we find that John speaks of the messenger of the light and the mission of the light. Speaking of Jesus as the light, this is how John presented to us, the messenger of the light and the mission of the light. And so these headings in mind, let's look now to the text and hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through the Apostle John and ask for God's help to understand it. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for His help. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. And we come now again to consider it. And we ask for your help. We ask that you would now illuminate the text of Scripture for us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would keep me free from error as I seek to uh, expound and exposit your word. Lord, we ask that in this time you would help us to see and behold Christ in his glory. And that in seeing and beholding Christ in his glory, that we would revel in the grace made available to us in Christ. And that all this, Lord, would produce in us a reprioritization. We pray that you would help us to make the priorities of Christ our priorities. And we ask it all in His name. Amen. Well, we have first to consider, as John lays out for us, the messenger of the light. Our passage opens in verse 6 by saying, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So the Apostle John here speaks of another character by the name of John. And we come to understand that this is none other than John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as he's also known. This man, we're told, has been appointed by God to fulfill a particular role. And that role was signified first by his very name. We learn in Luke chapter 1 and verse 13 that his, his parents actually did not name this man John the Baptist. Rather, an angel of the Lord foretold his birth, and at that time he commanded his father to name him John, which actually means the grace of God. And this was fitting given the, the role that God had purposed for him to fulfill. It is that purpose that we read about in the next verse. In verse 7, we read, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. The Apostle John has already made clear to us in this passage that this light is to be understood as Jesus Christ. Greg did a wonderful job last week unpacking that for us. To understand Jesus as the light is a broad concept encompassing the idea that Jesus not only possesses in Himself, but is Himself the source of all spiritual enlightenment, all natural reason. Jesus is Himself the source of these things. It's by His grace, it's by the grace of His eternal existence and His work that men are able to possess the knowledge of God and any degree of natural wisdom. And it's John the Baptist who was the first to point mankind to behold this reality in the person of Jesus. Indeed, it was the design of God that through Him, that is through John the Baptist, all might come to believe, the text says. Thus, his name is fitting, because it is the very grace of God that would reveal through John the message that the light was coming 
to penetrate the darkness which pervades humanity. He bore witness as a preacher of grace, the grace made available by the light. But the Apostle John, writing here, makes clear that as special as John the Baptist was as the messenger of the light, he was not the light, but came only to bear witness about the light. And the distinction must be clear. Some may have been tempted to give honor and glory to one who possessed such precious knowledge. Some, in fact, were tempted in this way, as we read about later in this chapter. Because of the works of God done through His servants and and the wisdom that He makes known to His servants, people are compelled to bow down before men who represent God. This was the case with Paul and Barnabas in the town of Lystra. But just as Paul and Barnabas urged the people to see that they were but men, they said, of like nature with you, the apostle here wants us to see that we must never attribute the glory and honor which rightly belongs to Christ to any other. And in light of that reality, that John the Baptist is not the light, and that no one should attribute any glory to him, some may ask, well, why then does the author give attention to the baptizer here? He began this chapter telling us about the eternal Logos, the Creator and Savior of all men. So why give attention to one who's anything less? And that's a great question. And the answer is that in writing this text, the apostle gives attention to this John the Baptist figure for the same reason that God sent the baptizer to begin with. And that reason is for us. The baptizer carried a message from God, a groundbreaking message in the story of redemptive history. And throughout the history of redemption from Adam and Eve forward. Whenever God was going to do some great act, He announces it. Through one of His prophetic servants, God makes His acts clear and verifiable through His prophets for those who will receive that message. For those who will receive these great acts of God. And that's what we find here. But as John pointed not to himself, but to the light. So we are quickly going to move this morning to give our attention primarily to that light as well. And we do so in consideration of the mission of the light. The text continues in verse 9 by saying, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is how John shifts to speaking about the mission of Jesus in the world. With this shift, we return back to considering the Son of God Himself. Not just the forerunner and one who reflected the light, but the light itself. By way of comparison, comparison, it is that if John, if in John we, we see the moon with its light, real as it may be, But nonetheless, it remains only a reflection of the light of the sun. 
If that's what we find in John, this moonlight, then in Jesus of Nazareth, we behold the sun itself. Because Jesus, you see, doesn't merely reflect the light, but radiates the light. In fact, the author of Hebrews makes this clear in Hebrews chapter 1, saying of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So that to see Jesus is to see the God of all knowledge, all wisdom, and all power. And this is clear from John here in verse 9 in our text. Look at it. The apostle refers to Jesus using the phrase, the true light. And this phrase is used not so much in contrast to John the Baptist. It's used to set Jesus up in contrast to all the elements throughout the history of redemption that were but single rays of light intended to guide mankind back to the source of light in Jesus. Jesus, you see, is the true light in contrast to all the lesser lights which prefigured Him. You can think of the lampstand which stood in the tabernacle that was the single source of illumination lighting the way of the priest into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the true and better light. You see, Jesus is the true light in contrast to the pillar of fire which guided the Israelites through the desert to the promised land where they would experience rest and peace in the presence of God. And every other element that God used in the Old Testament as a flicker of light pointing to the true light that illuminated and opened up the way into the presence of God. Friends, there were many rays of light, but the Apostle tells us that in Christ we behold the great and true light. And Jesus takes this designation on Himself. You remember in John chapter 8 and verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. This Jesus, who is the light, the Apostle tells us, is able to give light. To everyone. And the light which he gives to everyone is the light of the gospel, the good news that in him mankind might be delivered from the domain of darkness and made citizens of the kingdom of light. The announcement was that though mankind is brought into this life, separated God, from God by their sin, he would make a way for them to be made right with God and at peace with God. And the Apostle gives attention to this because it was indeed a, a glorious announcement. Not just glorious in its substance, but glorious in its scope. We're told here that He gives light to everyone. And this does not mean that every man, woman, and child come to the light and live in the light. We know that's not true. It means that this announcement is made to all people, no matter their background, ethnicity, or, or their place in the world. It is to both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus makes His announcement. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, then 
You know, it was the repetitive promise of God to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Yet as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, the nation of Israel that God made knew many prophets. They knew many prophets who would call them to the knowledge of God. Yet there were few instances in which prophets were sent to the Gentiles to bring them into covenant relationship with God. But here, the apostle tells us that the true light has come. And in his coming, he brings good news to all peoples and nations everywhere. Unlike the prophets of old that were given specific missions to specific peoples, the true light now comes with the broadest mission known in redemptive history. His task was to broadcast the fullness of light to the fullness of God's people, including those both near and far from God, to both Jews and Gentiles. As He is the light, He is able to give light in its fullness. And in this way, we see that Jesus, as the light, was on mission in His coming. The Apostle tells us in verse 9 that He was coming into the world. And, and we cannot miss this, friends. The light of the Gospel was not simply announced to us from heaven. The message was not just given to a divinely authorized prophet. We've already noted that the, the prophets were given specific mis messages to specific peoples. The prophets would understand and make known to people however much of God's redemptive plan was appropriate at that time. Yet in the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth not His prophet, but his Son. Now we understand that the Gospel has been made known in the only way that it can be fully known. And that is by way of the One who is light personally coming into the world to reveal it. Next week we're going to focus more intently on the need for God Himself to enter into human history in order to make salvation possible. But, but for now, we cannot overlook the emphasis that the Apostle places on the initiative taken by Christ in this endeavor to shed abroad the light of the Gospel. I said that this section of the text speaks to the mission of the light. Light being Jesus. We see this in considering that Jesus has not totally or even primarily delegated this announcement to another. Rather, He Himself has come to make it known. In accord with the divine counsel of the triune Godhead, the, the will, the love, and the commitment of God to reconcile a people to Himself have been made 
most clearly known in this one fact, that God has not stood far off from humanity, waiting or commanding them to come near to Him. God in the flesh has come into the world to make His plan of salvation known. You, you, you see it? God has moved toward humanity, not the other way around. And friends, this is what Christmas is all about. A Savior on mission. We must not lose that. We must not allow culture to define the season for us. Christmas is not about being a better person. It's not about being a good neighbor. Christmas is not even about giving to your neighbor unless that giving is motivated solely by the desire to help that person come to understand God's great gift of salvation. I've even heard pastors say that this is a time to leverage the joy of the holiday to reconcile with family. But we must be absolutely clear. The celebration of Christmas is the celebration of Christ reconciling God to man. If familial reconciliation comes out of that, well, praise God. But we must never allow the subsequent effects of Christ's mission to overshadow the sole essence of His mission. And that is to reconcile God to man. If we miss that, then we miss the meaning of Christmas. The Apostle goes on now to expound on the reception that Christ was met with in His mission. In, in verse 10, he notes what can only be categorized as a most profound and perplexing reality. He says of Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. The Apostle here reiterates what he's already said in verse 3. He says here that Jesus, even more than King of the world, is Creator of the world. And we know from Colossians chapter 1 that because all things are made through Him, it should be evident that all things were made for Him. His existence as Creator should bring about the response of submission to Him as King. But the Apostle makes clear that it doesn't. It's enough to contemplate the reality that the sovereign Creator of the world has taken up residency within it. But even more perplexing is the fact that the world rejects the Creator along with the message that He brings. John says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And here, John speaks about the relation of mankind to Christ. The, the term world here is used to refer to mankind in general. And the phrase, did not know Him, is an all-encompassing idea that entails failure to see who He is, and refusal to acknowledge Him for who He is. 
John makes clear in no uncertain terms that this is the normal state of mankind. Neglecting and rejecting the God who made them. John actually goes on later in chapter 3 verse 19 to say more definitively, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But moving beyond the the general rejection of the world, the apostle then tells us that Jesus has been rejected by a specific people. In verse 11 we read, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Of course, what's meant is that Jesus comes as a descendant of David to fulfill God's covenant promises, promise to sit on the throne of David forevermore. And the Jewish nation almost wholesale rejects Him. This is such a sad occurrence in the history of the nation of Israel. Because throughout their history, from its inception, Israel had as its hope the promise that God would send a Redeemer to save them from their sins and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on their behalf. One theologian has said that all of Israel's history is preparing the way for the coming of this future figure who would be everything that Adam failed to be, everything that Israel failed to be, and ultimately a once-for-all sacrifice for sins that Israel could finally enjoy the fullness of God's blessings. But tragically, those who had received the promises of a coming Savior did not receive Him, we're told. The story of Israel is not unlike that of mankind. Rejection of God's rule is really the story of Israel from the earliest days. When Israel had God for their king, ruling through the judges, it wasn't enough for them. They cried out for a king to rule over them like the rest of the nations. And that attitude runs all the way through to the cross. You'll remember the exchange as the Jews pressed Pilate to crucify Jesus. In John chapter 19, verse 15, we read, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And what was the response? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Yet, Knowing that this would be his welcome, Jesus comes still to an ungrateful, obstinate people. A people who, though they should not be, are arrogant of his divine nature and his saving power. And so the natural question is why? Why would he come? Because he's intent in His mission to save His own. And now it's those who are truly His own that the Apostle speaks of. After having described what reception 
Jesus had from the world and, and from the nation that he created, John tells us of another group. And this is the group that Jesus has really been focused on the whole time in his coming. Look at verse 12. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we find that though the propensity of humanity has rejected the light and has refused his mission to reconcile man to God, there are some who have not. There are some who have received him. And so as to not be ambiguous about what it means to receive Jesus, John clarifies for us what he means. He says, these are those who believed in His name. The name Jesus literally means God is salvation. And just as John the Baptist's name was given to him by God, so Jesus' name was assigned to His parents by God. It's in Luke chapter 1 that we read of the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary what would be the name of the child in her womb conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus bore this name in its fullest sense as He was in fact the incarnation of the God who brings salvation. To, to state it more plainly, not only does His name mean God is salvation, He is the God who brings salvation. And more than this, God has given other names to the Redeemer that would deliver God's people. We read just earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To believe in his name is to acknowledge that He is what these great names describe Him to be, and not just believe He is what those names describe Him to be, but to accept that He is the fulfillment of these things for us personally. John tells us that for all those that do believe, to them He gave the right to become children of God. The Apostle now reveals to us the profound truth of the doctrine of adoption. And make no mistake, the, the New Testament doctrine of adoption is a profound truth. When we refer to the doctrine of adoption, we mean the act by which God not only counts sinners as righteous, but He takes those who were by nature children of wrath and He bestows on them all the privileges of the children of God. One writer meditates on the importance of the doctrine of adoption, saying the biblical motifs for salvation are not left in the cosmic courtroom, but boldly and intimately proceed into the home and fatherly heart of God. God is not exclusively judge. He is a gracious Father. 
The believer stands not merely as an acquitted criminal, but as an adopted son. It's because of the doctrine of adoption that Paul can say in Romans 8 of those that believe we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. But John wants to be clear about the nature of this adoption. And in doing so, he makes clear that this is not some arbitrary or ambiguous concept. He he accomplishes this clarification by describing the process of adoption for us in verse 13. Look there. He says that those who've been given the right to become children of God by faith in Jesus were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus, it is unequivocally clear that entrance into the family of God comes only by the divine initiation and supernatural act of God. It was the church father Tertullian who said, persons are not born Christians, but made such. Friends, hear me. Children in the room, hear me when I say, You are not a Christian because your mom and dad are Christian. You are not a Christian because your grandmother was a Christian. John makes clear that you're not a Christian because you decided by your own will to be so. The text could not be clearer. If you have received Christ believing in His name, and therefore have been made a member of the family of God, it is owing solely and wholly to the will of God. And we must notice here the thoroughness by which God accomplishes this adoption. He he does so in, in a way that's unknown to the natural world. In the natural world, adoption is accomplished by Simply taking one who's not naturally a member of your family and bringing them into the love and nurture and care of your home. And wonderful as that is, God works mysteriously and more thoroughly than this natural process to bring His children into His family. Look at verse 13 again. The apostle says that those who he gave the right to become children of God were born of God. This does not refer to their natural first birth, but to a supernatural second birth. You see, in in, in the expansion of God's family, he does not just claim men as his own. He creates new men in Christ. He causes them to be born again to a new life in Christ and thereby bestows on them all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters of God. Church, the sum of Jesus' mission is understood in this. The Son of God 
became a son of man that the sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. That's what Christmas is about, friends. Brothers and sisters, there are so very many implications and applications of this text this morning. There's no way we could even mention them all, much less expound on them. But, but I, I would like to draw our attention to a couple that, that I think are vital if this passage is going to be more than just a, a theological meditation for us. First of all, we must see that embracing the reality of our adoption as sons and daughters of God should bolster and solidify our confidence in our relationship to God. It's a, it's a common struggle for all Christians to continually try to rest in the grace of God and, and trust that we actually have access to the Father based on the merits of Christ. It's a daily battle in my life to simply trust that the grace of God is real and effective in my life based on the merits of Christ. Be it that you struggle to believe that God actually hears your prayers when so many of them seem to go unanswered for so long. Or be it that you struggle to find boldness to pray because you are so well acquainted with the sin that resides in your heart. Friends, the answer to both of these is an embrace of the doctrine of adoption. You have not only been welcomed as you are, but God has acted supernaturally to bring you into His family as one who is as naturally His as Christ is naturally His. Think on that for a minute. And tell me if there is anything that can give you more confidence in your walk with God than that. Friends, I, I must tell you, I hate to hear every time I hear someone say, or, or rather refer to humanity as the children of God. I hate that. I'm not going to go into a theological you know, discourse with someone in the middle of public settings where that often happens. But I hate it. It irks me so bad. It's simply not true. All of mankind is, are not children of God. Creations of God, yes. Not children of God. That's a blessing bestowed only on those in Christ. But for those that receive Him, who believe in His name, it is not only that God has the right to lay claim to them, but according to the Apostle John here, you, friend, have the right to lay claim to God as your Father. So brothers and sisters, pray. Pray boldly, trusting that God hears you and that He accepts you as His own just as Christ is His own. Additionally, we, we dare not leave this text without 
reckoning with the fact that our priorities cannot be divorced from the priorities of our Savior. And He's made known to us here that He is nothing other than a missional Savior. He has come as the light to make the light of the gospel known. This was the purpose for which He came. And and if it is His purpose in the world, how can we not make this our purpose in the world? There's much about the work of Christ that we cannot imitate. But the work of witnessing and proclaiming the gospel faithfully, consistently, intentionally, even when it's hard, even when it feels awkward, even when you're not sure you have all the right words to say. The work of witnessing and proclaiming the gospel, friends, is a work of Christ that we are able to imitate. Beyond that, it's a work of Christ we're commanded to imitate. So this Christmas season, as we meditate on the love of Christ that produced such a missional commitment in Himself. Let it reinvigorate our commitment to live life on mission, making known the light of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we just we pray that you would do that this morning. Oh God, help our understanding of Christ to grow and deepen and strengthen our love and commitment to Him. And in the growth of that love and commitment to Him, Lord, we we pray that we would embrace anew the adoption that You have given us as children. That we would be confident in our relationship with You, God and all that that entails. And Lord, fueled by the love that You've given us in Christ, that we would be faithful to proclaim the message of Christ, who is the light to all. And we ask it in His name. Amen.